Alrighty then. What's up with the chairs? Huh? Totally distracted throughout the entire worship set. You're just wondering where your chair is. You come every week, you sit in the same chair, and now you can't find it. Let me reassure you, it's here. It's the green one. Okay? So just look around till you find it and then sit in it and be comfortable. Um, what's up with the chairs? Good question. In order to explain that to you, I want to walk back through the two great questions that we've been wrestling with so far this year as a church family. Question number one, do you really believe God loves you? I mean, really believe that he loves you. In Romans chapter 5, it says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Undeservedly, God loves us. Do you believe that? Not just give assent to it, but believe it in such a way that it affects you. Tim Keller tells a story of a teenage girl that he was uh, talking with early in one of his pastorates, and she came into him and tried to encourage her. She says, yeah, I know Jesus loves me. He saved me. He's going to take me to heaven, but what good is it when no boy at school will even look at me? Right? Do you love God in a way that it makes you content, that it affects you, that it shapes you? Do you know that you are loved that way, loved by God? If the answer to that question is yes, if you believe that God loves you, there's a second necessary question that follows almost immediately. And that is, if he loves me like that, how can I love him back? Right? If God loves me like that, how is it that I can love him back? 1 John chapter 4 puts it very simply, we love because he first loved us. And in recent weeks, we've been talking about different ways that we can love God back through our obedience, our glad obedience to him, through the way that we pray and we cry out to him in our time of need and exalt him as great. Last week, Daniel talked to us about how in our personal worship, we can love God back. So what does all this have to do with the rearranging of the chairs? Okay. Um, this is how we love God back. We rearrange the chairs. Clear as mud, right? To make sense out of all that, to see how it fits together, I need to introduce you to someone. I need to introduce you to someone named Peter. Peter, yes, that Peter. Peter was one of the 12 disciples. In a sense, he was kind of the ringleader of the 12, um, kind of a spokesman for the group. Um, he was a fisherman that Jesus called to follow him, and Peter immediately, enthusiastically said yes. And I suppose... If anything marked Peter's ministry, it was immediate enthusiasm. Um, I, I, I love Peter. He's an encouragement to me. He's the guy that when Jesus, they, the, they were out in the boat, the disciples were, Jesus came walking on the water. Peter was the one who leapt out of the boat to walk on the water to get to Jesus. Um, Peter was the disciple who was bold enough to rebuke Jesus. Okay. Peter was... The disciple was brave enough to refuse Jesus washing his feet. He was the disciple who was renowned for speaking even when he doesn't, didn't know what to say at one point. Um, Peter was man of action. He was quick to swing the sword in the garden. He was the one who 
cut off a servant's ear when they came to arrest Jesus. That's all Peter. What I'd like you to think with me most carefully about Peter today as we get ready to look at the passage we're going to look at is in Matthew chapter 26. It says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the night before Jesus was crucified. And then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this, this very night, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Scroll down just a little bit after Jesus is arrested and he's being tried on his way to the cross. This is what we read. Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. And then he began to evoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and he wept bitterly. Peter was a man of great faith and great failures. Um, and he, this Peter is right at the center of our story today as we conclude our series about how we love God back. And you can find that story in John chapter 21. You can turn in your Bible there. I know for some of you, the way you're sitting, it's hard for you to see the screen. Let me in a, let you in on a little secret. Every Bible verse that's on the screen, in your Bible. Nothing new on the screen. So you can just look in your Bible if you like. We'll be in John 21 the last chapter of the book of John, uh, the rest of the day today. So the story there unfolds in three scenes. I want to move through the first two pretty quickly and then slow down and focus on the third scene of John 21. Um, the first scene is a failed fishing outing that turns into the fishing trip of their dreams. Okay? John chapter 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called a twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, we don't know why they went out fishing. Some have suggested that they were discouraged and they were returning to fishing for fish as opposed to fishing for men as Jesus had called them to. That's possible. But we're not really told why they went fishing. We're just told that they had absolutely no luck at it 
Zero fish. This is the worst fishing trip ever. Out all night, they get zero. Until Jesus, the risen Jesus, shows up, and then this happens. Just as day was breaking, they'd been fishing all night, Jesus stood on the shore, and yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's how John refers to himself in this gospel, The disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. So, as is somewhat typical of Peter and John, their relationship and the way they work, John is the first to figure something out. Peter is the first to act on it. And you have to love this about Peter, right? Whether it's leaping out of the boat to walk on water to get to Jesus, or in this case, leaping out of the boat to swim to see Jesus on the shore, um, Peter is all about it. And, and I think you, would, you could say with me, Peter's love for Jesus is evident here. Wouldn't you say, Peter loves Jesus? I mean, he's 100 yards offshore. He's not going to wait for the boat to come in. He dives in to swim in to see Jesus. But the thing that seems to be most evident in our story is simply this. When the resurrected Jesus arrives, outcomes change. Fruitless endeavors become bountiful. Failures are redeemed. Our failure becomes something wonderful under Jesus' directive. That's what's happening here. And that's scene one. Scene two is breakfast with Jesus, okay? The risen Jesus, no less. It starts in verse nine. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Okay, so this has to be the most amazing breakfast of their lives, right? An invitation to have breakfast with the resurrected Christ. That's a breakfast invitation, okay? And they, Jesus invites his disciples. It's interesting, he doesn't invite them to some activity. He invites them to breakfast. Why do you go to breakfast with somebody? Because you want to hang out with them. He invites them to a shared meal. It was an expression of communion with them. Um, The risen Jesus desired the company of his disciples. And let me just say that nothing about that has changed. A morning invitation 
to communion with the risen Jesus still stands to this very day for you and for me. Jesus wants to have communion with his disciples. But our interest in this story, as fascinating as that breakfast is, it's in scene three, which involves, in all likelihood, a walk on the beach, probably just between Peter and Jesus. Um, So let's listen in on that conversation in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John. It's like he's using his last name there. You know, whenever your mom used to address you with your first name and your last name, that usually wasn't a good thing. There's a little bit of a rebuke perhaps coming. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Could be more than these fish. Probably it's more than these, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Because what had, remember what Peter had said? If they all deny you, I'll never deny you. I love you more. And now Jesus, after his denials, is coming to him and saying, so Peter, do you love me more than these? And Peter, you can hear the humility. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Jesus asks Peter basically the same question, not once, not twice, but three times. And each time, Peter affirms his love for Jesus, right? Why three times? Well, for sure, Jesus now has really underscored for Peter and for all of us the importance of this question, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Jesus clearly is asserting that this question is of the utmost importance. It's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus is hammering that home with Peter and with us. Dale Bruner says, is it not a little surprising that in all three of Jesus' ordination charges to Peter, he says essentially the same thing. Please take good care of my people whom I give to you. One might imagine that Jesus could have given three different specific and even more seemingly practical steps to successful discipleship, like please pray and read your Bible daily, please go to church regularly, and please seek social justice always. Why does Jesus leave out practical particulars like these, which experience has taught us, um, taught the church through the centuries, are so helpful in fruitful discipleship? Why does Jesus say the same thing three times, almost as if this one thing will be enough? Perhaps because this one thing will be enough. See, this one thing leads over into all those other things. Jesus' teaching underscores the importance of loving God. And he shows us how. 
but more about that in a minute. It may be that this threefold questioning by Jesus has correspondence in Peter's life to another threefold incident. Okay? We read about it earlier, his three denials. Look back with me at scene two. Okay? Let's go back to breakfast with Jesus, verse nine. Um, notice what kind of fire that Jesus has on the beach. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. So John takes careful note to mention that this is a charcoal fire. It's a specific word used to describe a specific kind of fire. That, that expression only occurs one other time uh, in the whole New Testament, and it's written by John. Let me show you where this reference to a charcoal fire shows up another time. It'll sound real familiar to you. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. And now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves and Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The only other time that a charcoal fire is mentioned by John or any other author in the New Testament is at Peter's denials. It's when Peter denied Jesus. And now, as Peter is being restored by Jesus, that same, Jesus starts that same kind of fire. It's the same setting. Only now, rather than deny Jesus three times, Peter affirms his love for Jesus three times. I like the way Dale Bruner says it. He says, perhaps Jesus wanted Peter's last memory of his last main meeting with Jesus to be Peter's threefold, I do love you, Lord. I do love you, Lord. I do love you, Lord, rather than his shameful threefold, I don't know the man. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. Jesus meant his repeated questions for Peter's good and for his restoration. Jesus is sealing the restoration of Peter to usefulness to his Lord. So let's go back to that question. Jesus asks it three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? And I suppose we ought to put our own names in there. It's a question for you and me. Do we love Jesus? Jesus is asking each one of us through this story, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? How will you answer that question? Will you say yes? Because if you do, if you say yes, Jesus, I love you, then right away we're at that second question. How can I love you? How can I love you back, Jesus, for the way that you have loved me? And the answer to that is we rearrange the chairs. That's how we love Jesus back. Um, I wish it was that simple. I wish Jesus was just really into interior design and all we had to do to love him well was rearrange the furniture. Uh, But that's not what Jesus is after. Rearranging the chairs, rearranging the furniture 
is symbolic of rearranging something in our hearts. Um, in scene three of our story, um, Jesus is showing Peter how to do that thing that matters most in life, how to love him back. He says, do you love me, Peter? And then each time he says, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, tend to my flocks. That's what this arrangement represents, okay? It's intended to be a symbol for what, how Jesus tells us to love him back. We are to love each other. The people that you're looking across the room who are in your line of sight, you see them, that's how you love Jesus back. You're to love these people, and you are to love these people. That's how we love Jesus back. We really, truly love one another. See, we, we love what he loves most. We love his people. That's what sheep represents. You know, throughout the Bible, God is portrayed as the shepherd. We are portrayed as a sheep. Go all the way back to Psalm 23, one of the most familiar passages in the Bible, and it says, um, the Lord is my shepherd. Right? God is the shepherd, and, and thereby we are his Sheep, Jesus talked about himself that way. It's his favorite title. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. When you love someone, you begin to love what they love. My wife now owns a 21-speed road bike and a 17-foot kayak for run, one reason. She loves me. Okay. She hadn't ridden a bicycle since she was probably eight years old until I took up cycling about 15 years ago or more, and so she got one. And she, she grew to love it because she loves me. And so she rides with me, mostly, in front of me. That's kind of how she rides but she does that because she loved me. And then, you know, a couple years ago, I found this amazing deal on Craigslist. It was a kayak with a hole in the bottom, and I couldn't resist it. And I've grown to love kayaking. Um, I go out on the lake, and, I, and I, I love it. And so now my wife, to a lesser degree, loves kayaking. Only one reason, she lo- because she loves me. When you love someone, you love what they love. So I am... Uh, a Duke Blue Devils fan for one reason. I love my wife, and she is a Duke Blue Devils fan. That, that's the only reason. I love the Dallas Cowboys for one reason. All three of my sons are rabid Dallas Cowboys fans. I love the Dallas Cowboys. That's the only reason. See, when you love someone, you love what they love. And if we love Jesus, we love what he loves. We feed, we tend, we care for his sheep, his people, the church. The church is not the building. The church is the people that you see across the way. And if you love Jesus, if you want to love him back, it's by loving the people that are in this room. Genuinely loving them. What might that look like? 
I mean, if you really are serious about loving Jesus back, and if we're right to understand this as one of the central ways we do that, what does it mean for you guys to love these people over here and vice versa? You know, we're going to be exploring that. In the next few weeks, we'll be moving from our series on loving God. Next week, we'll start a series on loving the church. Um, as we see that our love for God is expressed in the way we love one another over the next few months. Actually, we'll see how we fulfill circle one by moving into circle two. We love God back by loving his people. Um, and we'll, sort, we'll, we'll explore these things that I'm going to talk to you briefly about today over the next few months in that series. We'll touch on each of these. But we love one another the way that Jesus has loved us. Okay. And here's a few ways that that's going to shape us. We love one another humbly with humble acts of loving service. Paul writes in Philippians 2 to do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, better than yourselves, more important than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is how Jesus loved us. He put our interests above his own, and he humbled himself and loved us. Leith Anderson is an author and pastor, and he writes about um, one of the people that he's seen this played out in remarkable ways. Her name was Joan Hollister Gilbert. He says she's a delightful person who had a long, difficult, and courageous battle against cancer. Uh, to make matters worse, while she was fighting her cancer battle, her husband um, took on terminal cancer and he passed away. He says a few years after that, when Joan was dying herself, and with just a few days left to her life, she invited my wife and me to come and sit by her bedside, and she said she knew she was going to die. She talked a little about it. She wasn't afraid. She was excited about entering God's presence. But he says that was really a short part of the conversation. Most of the time, she talked about people that she was concerned about. She talked about us and our children. She talked about her children, the children of others. He said, I found out that on that day and the day before and the day after, leading right up to her death, she invited a whole list of people to come to her bedside so she could bless them before she died. Those who could not come, she talked with on the phone. He says, if anyone had a right to be self-concerned and if ever there was a time when she had every justification to be primarily focused on herself, it was Joan and it was then. But she lived out humility. She cared more about others and their needs than she cared about herself and her own needs. The humble person cares about people in need. This is what it means to love one another. We humbly serve these people and these people. My ego, my pride will not keep me from serving you. I will love you like Jesus with humble acts of service. We also say that we will love one another sacrificially. Um, in Ephesians, Paul s says to us, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That language of giving himself up is, is a description of what he did on the cross as he gave his life. He sacrificed his life for us. 
we will love one another sacrificially. There's an old book um, that I have on my shelf. It's called Dad the Family Coach by a guy named Dave Simmons. And he describes the shape that love takes, sacrificial love takes in the life of his eight-year-old daughter. He had an eight-year-old daughter, Helen, and a five-year-old son, Brandon. He says, I took him to the Cloverleaf Mall in Hattiesburg to do a little shopping. He says, as I drive up, I spy a Peterbilt 18-wheeler parked with a big sign on it that said, petting zoo. The kids jump in a rush and ask, Dad, can we go? Please, 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 can we go? So sure, he says, I flip them both a quarter before we walk into Sears. They bolted away. I felt free to take my time looking for a scroll saw. He says, a petting zoo consists of a portable fence erected in the mall with about six inches of sawdust and a hundred little furry baby animals of all kinds. Kids pay their money and stay in the enclosure enraptured with the squirmy little critters while their moms and dads shop. He says, a few minutes later, I turn around and see Helen walking behind me. I was shocked to see she preferred the hardware department to the petting zoo. Recognizing my error, he says, I bent down and asked her what was wrong. And she looked at me with those giant, limpid brown eyes and said sadly, well, Daddy, it cost 50 cents, so I gave Brandon my quarter. Then she said the most beautiful thing he says I've ever heard. She repeated our Simmons family motto. The family motto is, love is action. She had given Brandon her quarter, and no one loves cuddly, furry creatures more than Helen. Um, she had seen it in her house. She had heard us say it over and again. Love is action for years, and now she had incorporated it into her little lifestyle. It had become part of her. He says, what do you think I did? Not what you might think. He says, as soon as I finished my errands, I took Helen to the petting zoo and we stood by the fence and watched Brandon go crazy petting and feeding the animals. Helen stood with her hands and chin resting on the fence and just watched Brandon. I had 50 cents burning a hole in my pocket. I never offered it to Helen and she never asked for it because she knew, he says, the whole Simmons family motto. It's not love is action. It's love is sacrificial action. Love always pays a price. He says, love always costs something. Love is expensive. When you love, benefits accrue to another's account. Love is for you, not for me. Love gives, it doesn't grab. And Helen gave her quarter to Brandon and wanted to follow through with her lesson. She knew she had to taste the sacrifice. She wanted to experience the total family motto. Love is sacrificial action. My, my comfort will not keep me from loving you. My pursuit of comfort will not keep me from loving you. I will make a sacrifice to love you like Jesus. That's what we are calling one another to. One more thing we see is that um, we'll explore in the weeks that are ahead is that we love one another by forgiving when you wrong or fail me. Jesus was very clear in a conversation with Peter in Matthew 18. Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. It was an article on a, 
it's called the Science of Us website, and they had been exploring what science had learned about the area of forgiveness. And it was interesting. Um, the article um, summarized where they had seen in nature forgiveness or the lack of forgiveness in animals. And the summary went like this. Scientists have observed conciliatory behavior in many different animal species. The bulk of the research has been on primates like mountain gorillas and chimps who often follow confrontations with friendly behavior like embracing or even kissing. Scientists have observed similar behaviors in non-primates like goats and hyenas. The only species that has so far failed to show outward signs of reconciliation are domestic cats. Cats do not forgive. Let Let me be Captain Obvious. We are not cats. Okay? We are followers of Jesus, and we forgive as we have been forgiven. Okay? That's how we love him back. And we'll, we'll explore those three ways more seriously in the, in the weeks that are ahead, but um, the people sitting across the room from you, in your line of sight, loving them, is how you love Jesus back. With humble service, with sacrificial love, with willing forgiveness. And there are other, many other things that we could illuminate too. Here it's interesting, Jesus uses the language of feeding. Feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my, feed my sheep. Um, probably this implies because of Peter's role as a shepherd in the church the ability to feed and care for people spiritually, to teach them spiritually, to encourage them. And of course, this means that you have to have something to give to do that. You have to be tending to the care of your own soul so that you have love to give other people. Nurturing your own love for Jesus, and that's the end game of all Bible study and spiritual practices, right? We would love him more and love others even as he has done, that, that cultivation of your own love for Jesus is the necessary prerequisite to loving others. Are you in a place spiritually where you can feed Jesus' sheep spiritually? Have you tended to your own spiritual life so you can do that? And of course, this isn't just limited to our church family. It has bigger application. It has the application. Most of us have... Christians that we live with in our homes. Uh, it has application to our biological family. To love Jesus back is to love the believers in your family and care for them in the same way with humble service, sacrificial love, extending the forgiveness Christ has extended to you. We love Jesus by the way we love our families. Okay. So Jesus is rearranging the way we think about church. It's not a building. It's not something we do. It's who we love. Okay. It's about the people in this room, and that's why we rearranged the chairs. Jesus is calling you to a rearrangement, not just of furniture, but of, of your hearts, how you love his people and how you care for them. There's a comedian um, 
He's really rough around the edges. I can't recommend him to you, but I ran across one of his stories. His name is Louis C.K. He has a routine where he jokes about um, the impulse he has to give up his first-class airline seat to a soldier when they come on the plane. He says, um, servicemen and women always fly coach. I've never seen a soldier in first class in my life. And every time that I see a soldier on a plane, I always think, you know what? I should give him my seat. It would be the right thing to do. It'd be easy to do. and It would mean a lot to him. And then he says, I never have. Let me make that clear. I've never done it once. He said, here's the worst part. I was actually proud of myself for just having the thought of this. He said, I'm thinking I'm such a great guy. This is so nice of me to think of doing that and then totally never to do it. And this is kind of how we think about loving the church. Somebody says, you love the church? Ah, I love my church. Yeah. But we never really do it. Not with humble service and sacrificial love and willing forgiveness. Jesus is calling us to demonstrated love like his own. And so I just wonder if there's someone in this room that you have failed to love with a measure of intent. You have been unwilling to forgive. You have been unwilling to include Someone who has a need that you've known about, but you've been unwilling to meet, a need for conversation or time or finances or a need to be rebuked in love. Rebuke is to be a way that we love one another too. A need for help with their kids, with their yards. A need to forgive a wrong that they did to you. Just a need for grace. You know, you can maybe tempted to resist this when it gets this specific It's easy to agree when it's a platitude. Yeah, I love the church. But when I love that person in the church, we can be tempted to push back on that. And you need to know that that's exactly what it is. It's a temptation to sin. A failure to love is is our sin. Um, You know, um, back when Jeff Doyle, years and years ago, was our student pastor, uh, he made T-shirts for our youth group. And they had this, this is so Jeff Doyle, if you guys knew Jeff, this is, uh, this is his uh, saying, love me, love my church, Jesus, right? It's not a bad paraphrase of John 21. Love me, love my church. We, we could flip that around, I think. We could say, fail to love my church, Failed to love me. It's that important. We love one another. Love me, love my church. This is an essential way we love Jesus back. Um, And so what I want you to do, this room, it's barring a revolt. It's going to stay like this for the next 10 weeks or so. Okay. And every time you come into this room, I want you to be reminded... um, This is how I love Jesus back, by loving the people who are in this room with me, okay? By loving his church. And as we close today, some of you, God is speaking to you in ways that only you and God know. 
And so I want to encourage you as the worship team leads us in a time of response and worship, uh, we set aside the space on the steps just for people to take an initial loving step of obedience to God and come for prayer. You can come alone. Our leaders will be down here in these chairs. If you want someone to pray with you, you can grab a family member or a small group member and come. But if God's prompting you in this area, this is one of the ways we make space for you to take a first step of loving obedience to God. Let me back up. The very first question. Do I believe that God really loves me? What if you can't answer that yes? Well, then I I just want to know that God has brought you here today to invite you into a loving relationship with him as your heavenly father. I want to invite you into the love of God for you to experience his love as a beloved son and a treasured daughter. And in order to do that, you just have to believe that Jesus died to wipe away the sins that have made you estranged from God, and he bore the penalty for those, and he brings forgiveness for you so that you can know the love of your heavenly Father. And again, our leaders are available to pray with you during this time, or after the service, we'll be down front here by these steps just to talk and pray with you about that important matter. So if you'll bow with me in prayer, then we'll worship Christ and respond to his word. Father, help us now as your people to love you back. How could we not? How could we not? Yet forgive us when we fail to love what you love care about what you care about, to love the people that you love, your sheep, your little lambs, you call them. Um, Give us grace. Give us open hearts this day to your word, and as this teaching unfolds, give us grace to welcome it and embrace it and obey it as an expression of our love for you. We ask this in Christ's great and glorious name. Amen. Would you stand with me? Let's worship.